is Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, and today will be better than yesterday. Taylor Schwink, the Rev, is working from the pulpit uh, in Connecticut. Sarah Abbott is in the hangar in Bristol, and I'm Buster Oli in Fort Myers, Florida. I get to see the Phillies play the Twins later today. Sarah, I, look, I got to talk to you right off the top. We have big news this morning. We learned big news. It probably already has been out there that pertains to you. You ready? Yes. Tell okay, me. The first Sunday night game that we have this year, Phillies Rangers. Okay. In Arlington, Texas. Guess who'll be in Arlington that Friday and Saturday? Oh my gosh. Miles Teller? No, Taylor Swift. Oh. As concerts, those two days. And so the text message chain with Eduardo Perez, who we're going to talk to later, with Carl Ravitch, with David Cohn, was, are we going to become Swifties that weekend? Are we going are. to the concerts? You are. Well, now you have background. You have knowledge on Taylor Swift. So you can help guide those conversations. Right. Uh, and I made an old man joke when I said, you know, I, I tweeted them the, the video of Taylor Swift, shake it off and saying what pitchers can't do now with a pitch clock. Right. Uh, and then we talked about the prices for these concerts, low end 427, high end 7250, which I told Eduardo was like, that's the section he apparently bought out $7,000 per ticket. Uh, I'm kidding. He, he would not buy oh. those tickets. But <laughs> we're like, trying to Whoa. figure out, like, if we're going to go to the concert. I'm kind of thinking, no, that feels a little pricey for me. How much are you paying for the tickets you're, you bought? Um, so I was lucky enough if my tickets were a gift from my family. So I, I got very, 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 very fortunate, but I don't, I don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah. In, uh, and I suspect based on the prices that I saw today, you got the Taylor Swift tickets in lieu of any future wedding. Right. I mean, <laughs> it would be yeah. that expensive. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, all right. Well, today. We'll be talking with the legend, the voice of the show. Book Shambi is going to join us and mentioned Eduardo, who has some observations about an up-and-coming slugger in the Cardinals organization and an important but murky injury situation for the defending champions. And we'll be talking with Alden Gonzalez, who's in Arizona. We'll digest the bad injury news that have hammered that has hammered uh, the National League West teams in the last couple of days. Let's start with this, a bleacher tweet from Andrew Stout, who says, people who love sports like the pitch clock. He puts sports in quotation marks. People who love baseball hate the pitch clock. Here I stand. I can do no other. Andrew, are you telling me then that Paul Goldschmidt hates baseball because he likes the pitch clock? Buck Showalter, you telling me he hates baseball because he likes the pitch clock? Theo Epstein, you think he hates baseball? No, a lot of people in the game really love the pitch clock. I'm going to ask Book Shambi the percentage of people he's spoken with and how much they uh, you know, who like the pitch clock. I, I think it's fairly apparent early in the in the preseason tale that a lot of people like the pitch clock. Positive reviews all around. You really just roasted Andrew. I'm so sorry that he had to experience that that brutal beating no. you just gave him. I, you know, and I have so much respect for Andrew. You know, he, he sends us great bleacher tweets all the time, but in mm -hmm. this case, I just disagree. Well, uh, as we taped the show yesterday morning, we got confirmation from a source that Gavin Lux had suffered a terrible injury, a bad injury uh, in the exhibition game earlier this week. The uh, Dodgers announced yesterday that he suffered a torn ACL. He's out for the year. And an emotional Lux, who was going to be the Dodgers shortstop, spoke of the reporters yesterday. I think every baseball player's dream is to play shortstop for, for the Los Angeles, <laughs> Los Angeles Dodgers. So, um yeah, I think that's one of the hardest parts. And Gavin, you've had such an outpouring of support from Dodger fans everywhere. What does that mean to you? Yeah, uh, Dodgers fans, uh, I've felt pretty much all the love and support uh, last night, this morning. Um, you know, best fan base in the world. So, uh, you know, can't thank them enough for, for all the love and support, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, just terrible news about Gavin Lux. I'm going to talk to Alden about potential alternatives for the Dodgers at shortstop. I have a piece coming out, I think, later today on ESPN.com, laying out some of those. It's not an inspiring list, that's for sure. Tyler Glass now is going to be out six to eight weeks with that oblique strain that we heard about earlier this week. 
But the big injury news that we new news that we got on Tuesday was about Padres pitcher Joe Musgrove. He fractured his big toe in a weight room accident, dropping a kettlebell on his left big toe. Here's Padres manager Bob Melvin. Dropped a weight on his foot, kettlebell. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, do you know how long that could be? It, it, it's going to be a minimum of a couple weeks before he throws. So he starts throwing again. So we'll see. It's kind of tough to forecast when you have a broken toe. It's going to be more about how it heals. And certainly if it's a pain tolerance thing, Joe would be one of those guys would be sooner than later. But obviously we have to, you know, evaluate how, how he's feeling every day. And we'll see where we go. Yeah, there's a long history in baseball of big toe injuries for pitchers that wind up affecting the player's career when they came back too soon. The most notable was Hall of Famer Dizzy Dean, who had his foot fractured and line drive back through the middle, and he was never the same after that because he came back too early. Brendan Rodgers of the Rockies had to leave Tuesday afternoon's game after sustaining a left shoulder injury. Uh, Rockies manager Bud Black described Rodgers' shoulder joint as having, quote-unquote, popped out. Not good. Fernando Tatis Jr. Uh, played in his first game for the Padres in nearly 17 months on Tuesday, going 0 for 2. Here's some sounds uh, of spring training. Sweet sounds. How about Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado going back to back? Over his shoulder, waits on another pitch, and he hits one into left center field. This ball's going back at the track, at the track. Robles is there. He leaps. He can't get it. It's a home run. As Paul Goldschmidt hits one in the left center field, just over the wall. Waits on the first pitch. He swings and hits one in the center field. Robles goes back at the wall. He's at the track, and that one is gone. Back-to-back home runs for the Cardinals as Nolan Arenado hits one over the 406 mark. It really has become the clubhouse of Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado. You could feel that uh, in their camp the other day. Josh Bell, an offseason signing of the Cleveland Guardians, launched a two-run homer his first of the spring. Uh-oh. Deep right field. Doc is eaten. He won't get this one. Up on the roof and out of here for Josh Bell. And Jose Abreu, the Astros, did some damage in their exhibition on Tuesday. That's in the air to left from Abreu. Hooking down the line. This ball is fair. And to the wall. And Dusty's going to be happy. There's a ribby for Jose Abreu. And a run-scoring double for Jose Abreu to put the Astros on the board. So a lot going on around baseball. Taylor, what else you got? Buster, we have yet to record, but after this, we're going to get a new episode of the College Game Day podcast in the can with Reese Davis and Pete Thamel. They're talking to Joe Lenardi. It is officially March, so March Madness is just uh, really just a week away with conference tournaments. Joe's going to break down his bracket, who's in, who's out. I think Vanderbilt... Vanderbilt's in, right? Tell me Vanderbilt's in, right? They're going to shock everybody? Yes, yes, exactly. You got it, Buster. Well, Sarah, don't tell him. Don't tell him. Well, we'll keep it at that. All right. College Game Day podcast. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code BASEBALL. That's code baseball. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Eduardo Perez is, of course, an analyst on Sunday Night Baseball. He was on the call on Monday in that game between the Cardinals and the Mets. And Eduardo would be part of the Phillies uh, Red Sox broadcast. We'll do noon Thursday out of Fort Myers. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. I love this Florida weather right now. Favorite okay. time of the year. Uh, you love Florida weather, but you already were thinking about the conditions in Texas when we get there in the first weekend. And you said that the city of Arlington is going to be overrun by Swifties. And what you may or may not know is that Sarah Abbott, okay, is a Swiftie. But in the text exchanges we had this morning, you unveiled yourself as a Swiftie, right? Uh, What's uh, that about? Are you going to find a way to Taylor Swift concert when we're there that weekend? Look, this this is the tricky part. And I already sent out a text, a uh, group text that we had, my wife and my two daughters. And both my daughters are big time Swifties. My oldest one that's in uh, in college, she's a big time Swiftie. But that weekend, opening day weekend is a crazy weekend for us, right? We have a game Thursday in Houston yep. to open up the season. Then I have to fly back to Miami because it's prom, prom for wow. my daughter. Okay. And it's that's on Saturday. This is crazy. So I might, and then I'm going to have to fly back early morning Sunday to Dallas to be able to then call the game in Arlington that night. And then we find out about the Taylor Swift concert. And oh, by the way, my wife leaves Thursday evening from Miami to Bloomington, Indiana, because it's mother daughter weekend in Bloomington, Indiana. It's a thing that my daughter's been planning the entire time because of her sorority. And guess what? Both of all three of them, including myself, cannot go to the Taylor Swift concert. And I am massively upset because okay. we're big Swift. So you're not going. It sounds like you're going to fly back home on Friday then, and you won't have an opportunity to go. If you did have an opportunity to go, how much would I'm, you I'm pay in. for a ticket? I'd pay. I'd, I'd Depends where it's at but I would probably get into the 800 range. Wow. And that would probably give me a nosebleed. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Based on what I was seeing, I sent uh, you guys a text message that, you know, the tickets in the front row were going for $7,200. And I assumed you already grabbed five of those. (laughs) I wish. Prom would be in the front row. Mother daughter would be in the front row. And I would be right there with them on Friday night. Oh, there you go. Uh, I'm going to throw this at you. It was a bleacher tweet we got from a listener because it actually was a similar converse, similar to a conversation that we all had uh, in that tent on Monday. Uh, Stephen Schulman writes, idea to end the clock off, throw the pitch clock out with two outs in the ninth or any time when the possible last batter's up allows tension to build and takes the burden off the ump to end the game without a pitch. Eduardo, the other day in our conversation, you were talking about maybe turning off the clock in the eighth and ninth innings, and the rest of the you know the group there, Carl Ravage, Ollie, I think was Oliver. Ollie was right. in our group, right? Uh, Tim Kirkton, myself, we were like, nah, I can't do that. Like pitchers would complain about the rules being different for different innings. Let them. I think we hear people complain all the time, and every time there's change, people complain, right? That's the reality. <laughs> but the but the truth is. There's a name for a guy that ends the game in the ninth inning if it's a close and a save situation, right? He's the closer. There's the guy that comes in in the eighth inning. He's the setup guy. The guys that come in in the seventh, sixth, five, they're just long relievers. They're relievers. Uh, And, you know, now we've got situational guys here and there. But the reality is we're trying to get action. We're trying to keep the fan engaged in the game. Engagement usually starts in the eighth and ninth inning when it's a safe situation. It's a tight part of the game. People are standing in their seats. They're not trying to rush out of the stadium. They're not looking at their clock saying, this game's taking forever. The first seven innings will dictate that. And if it's a same, if it's a safe situation, what I'm proposing is look, turn off the clock. If it's not a safe situation, if the game's seven to two or 10 to one, don't turn it off. Keep the clock running. I got another proposal too, but, uh, uh, Before you I move wanna... on to that one, real quick, just to – I don't agree with you. I've told you that. But in the NFL, we have the two-minute warning, right, which right. is kind of what you're talking about. In the NBA, the game always slows down the last three minutes. So what you're suggesting is in keeping with what we're seeing some of the other sports. Go ahead with your other idea. A- absolutely. But this one's radical, and I think you might like this one because we're all about the fans. Major League Baseball polled the fans about this. I- I'm concerned about the concessions. Usually after the seventh inning, no more beer is sold, right? So oh, wait a and the games are quicker. Games are quicker now because if it's a one-nothing game, five two game where we get a couple home runs here and there, it could be so hear me out on this one, Buster. We have the two hour mark. In other words, 
if the game is at the two-hour mark and we are in the eighth inning and we're, let's say it's an hour 57 and we're in the eighth inning, you can still serve beer until the two hours are up. Now, if the game is only in the sixth inning and by chance it's a, it's a large lead or whatever it may be, and we're not at the seventh inning mark yet, so it's two hours over the seventh inning, you can continue to sell beer until that seventh inning is over. You like it or not? I okay, just, you know, I will defer to our. I'm going to defer to our beer person this podcast, and that would be Taylor Schwenk, who I, I don't know if you knew this, but there was one weekend in which he uh, supposedly drank 42 uh, during the course of a three days uh, a wedding event. Taylor, you want to chime in here with this proposal, Eduardo? That's the most brilliant thing that's ever been spoken on the podcast. See, <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I, see, I, beer guys get me. Beer guys get me, Buster. I just think, I, to me, I, it, it just makes a lot of sense because games are going to be quicker, and the guys are like, you want another beer? Oh, they already closed. It's the seventh inning, and it's only an hour and 45 minutes of game time or an hour 30 of game time, and we're in the seventh inning, and it's closed. Give that guy, give that family, give those buddies an extra 30 minutes. Yeah, and Taylor would say, give that man a Budweiser, right? I mean, that's as, as it, the saying used to go. So the beer man uh, endorses that. Maybe uh, Major League Baseball will be listening to this and will act on it. Uh, I want to ask you about something that uh, I know you were in Astros camp, and, and this is going to be a really important issue, I feel like, in the weeks ahead, and that is the health of Jordan Alvarez. You know, I didn't hit at a high level, but through the time I've covered baseball, I hear all the time, from guys like yourself, man, your hands, your wrists need to be right in order to hit. Jordan Alvarez is not swinging. He's not in, a, in the lineup. He's not taking batting practice. He's not doing anything other, as far as we know, other than getting treatment. Dusty Baker told reporters yesterday he can't address it. He can't give the information. Dana Brown, the Astros' new GM, said he thinks he'll be fine uh, and ready for opening day. This is a giant red flag situation with one of the best players in baseball for me. What do you see? Well, it's not only that it's a giant red flag is you have a team that a lot of the players are going to go to the world baseball classic and they're already on pins and needles with a team that has so much representation from pitchers and position players that Dana Brown and Dusty Baker are hoping that they all come back healthy. Uh, you have Jordan Alvarez, who is one of three left-handed hitters in that lineup that are, you know, that are projected to start in that lineup. Kyle Tucker's also going to play for uh, USA Baseball in Arizona, and then hopefully from there they go to Miami. But then you have Michael Brantley that we don't know yet if he's going to be available for opening day because he is on a hitting program to get that shoulder accustomed to be able to swing every day. Well, the last conversation I had with him, he said, look, I feel great um, from my hitting program, but time will tell if I'll be ready opening day or not, the plan is yes, but will he be able to play every day? That still remains to be seen, and you don't have any right, left-handed guys on the bench, so it's going to be a predominantly right-handed hitting lineup if Jordan Alvarez is not a part of it. And that's why, uh, to me, it's very interesting because we saw what happens when you have a predominantly right-handed lineup. You get overexposed. The Tor Toronto Blue Jays is a great example yes. of it. Last year, they got overexposed because they did not have a lefty balance. What did they do this offseason? Even though last year they said they dismissed it, we don't need it because our guys can hit righties and lefties. Look, they went out and they got lefties. They got lefties to balance out that lineup. You need it in order to succeed. The good thing is it's happening early. The bad thing is it's happening to one of your big guys, your big bopper. Uh, and Jordan Alvarez, who's had already history with this uh, wrist, you're hoping that he's able to get it better but only time will tell it is i've had wrist surgery before it actually just paralyzes you when you're you're a swinger when you're a hitter and it's not only on pitches up but on pitches away as well and Jordan Alvarez has great plate coverage that you're hoping that he does not get in bad habits by trying to pull the ball and that's what makes him so special is that he's able to hurt you the other way as well I wanted to ask you about Jordan Walker, a guy you talked to the other day. We got to talk to him during the broadcast. Uh, he told us that he first dunked when he was 14 years old. He also acknowledged that his listed height of 6'5 is not accurate, that he's now up to 6'6", 250. Uh, you really feel like there's a chance he's going to play a huge role for the Cardinals this year. 
I do. I do believe that. And uh, look, he's, first of all, he has presence. Yes. He has charisma. He's got the smile. He can be the face of not only the franchise, but the face of baseball in, in right there in St. Louis. And the Cardinals know it. I've, I believe he also understands it. Uh, this kid is uh, brought up the right way. He understands the strike zone, which is the hardest thing as a young player to understand what's a ball, what's not, if you chase or not. Um, you, that's that's his ability. And his ability of understanding that I'm not a home run hitter, I'm just a hitter. And his father instilled that in him right away. He uses an S318 bat, by the way. It's a 34-inch, and I want you to hear this, Buster, 31-and-a-half-ounce that. Tony Gwynn right now is standing up someplace, waving his arms and said, yes, 31 <laughs> ounces. All right. I knew your reaction was going to be that. And, and I asked him, I said, why such a light bat? And he said, well, I've had, I have really good control with it. And then I said, what about the length? And he goes, well, look at my arms. Look how long they are. I don't need to cover any more because if I would, my barrel would be outside the zone. For a 20-year-old kid to give you an answer, that mature and well thought of, um, well thought out. This is a kid that could break out with can could break out with the uh, St. Louis Cardinals out of Jupiter and go straight to St. Louis and be in that opening day lineup. So the other day, you got a chance to talk to Cody Senga of the Mets, who they invested seventy five million dollars in. Uh, every time there's a player from Japan, you immediately gravitate toward that player because you played over there and you like to show off your language skills and you have yeah. some of that. Um, I can tell you that folks with other teams were concerned about Senga and his durability. They wonder how he's going to hold up physically over here, which is why you know the, they uh, they didn't bid as high as the Mets did. What you, what was what was your takeaway from your conversation with him? Um, I love his presence. I love the fact that I even asked him. I even quietly I said, "You know more English than what you're leading on, right?" And he goes, "A little bit." You know, he gave me that a little bit, and I'm like, "Okay, so your English is." is is just like my Japanese. He goes, no, it's better. And so I thought it was really good that he had said that. But uh, look, he's, he's, he's finding out, and it's a major adjustment. Spring training in Japan is completely different than spring training here in the U.S. He's figuring out the, the feel of the baseball, the feel of the mound, the feel of the dirt is different as well. And the way practice is held, and it's always a huge adjustment period for a lot of these players. But one thing that I do love about it is he doesn't shy away from people. He doesn't stay by himself. He, when I had a conversation with him, there was the, his interpreter was nowhere near. It was like, okay, I can handle this. And, and that's what I really enjoy about it. You know, Cookie Carrasco has his locker right next to Kodai Senga. And he's like, hey, you know more English than what I thought you did. And, and then he looked at me and he says, why do you know Japanese? I, and and Kodai, he's doing his best to be able to get to know his teammates, but to get to know baseball here. And uh, he's done it brilliantly. He said right away in his first uh, conference, what I like is what I like is pizza and it tastes better here. You know what? McDonald's tastes better in Japan. I don't know. That's my, that's my personal opinion, but at <laughs> least that was the last time I think I had McDonald's, but, but um, Kodai Senga, he's, I think he's going to be better than what a lot of people thought he was going to be here. So uh, it doesn't surprise me that Cookie Carrasco jumped in because, as you know, there's no more of a world traveler in baseball than Carrasco. Like, he loves every offseason to go to a new place. So I'm sure he was fascinated to overhear your conversation. Last one for you. I'm going to ask this question to Book Shambi coming up. Uh, the new rules, the perception in their conversations with, you know, staffers, with players about how many are in favor of them. Tim Kirchin said on the podcast yesterday, 50-50. I told him my conversations are more like, you know, two thirds say yes, they absolutely love it. I was talking with people as I prepared this story on the Dodger shortstop issue, talking with the front office people. It's 100% in the front offices. They love it. From your conversations with people around the game, where would you put the percentage of people who like the new rules versus those who don't? Um, first of all, I love I love the new rules. I really do. I think they're they're going to make the fan involvement better. I think it's going to be more engaging. Yep. As far as having conversations with the players about it, you know, I had a conversation with with uh, Justin Verlander about it. He he enjoys it. 
Uh, he thinks, you know, him being so methodical, he thinks it's a new challenge uh, to be able to go out there and maybe toy around with some of the new rules. How can he get an advantage over the hitter? Um, he's had conversations with Max Scherzer about it as well. So I think the veteran guys are really embracing this because not only is this is something new, but it's not something that wasn't expected. So they've been talking about this for some time. Um, the hitters, um, I think, are adjusting to it, but they're going to realize as the weeks go by that this is actually good for them to be able to stay in a rhythm. The defensive players, the same thing. I think it's going to be interesting for the closers more than anything. Um, how are they going to be able to um, to adjust to pressure and it being quick? Uh, what pitches am I going to throw? How are they going to process that information? That's going to be different. But at the end of the day, I would say this this will be over 90% by the time the season's over of players that enjoy uh, the way the game is going to be played now. Eduardo, I'm totally with you. I, I, I You feel the momentum and you feel the players Really, as Carlos Correa said, you know, the younger players are telling them who played with these rules in minor leagues, look, you're going to love it. So we'll, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes. I will see you at the ballpark tomorrow. I'll be there. The Oakland Athletics. The A's are coming off a season in which they lost 102 games and had a run differential of negative 202, the worst in the American League. Gone but not forgotten. Just about everybody. Tony Kemp is still around and so is Seth Brown and Ramon Laureano, but Sean Murphy, the team's best player last season, is gone, as is Chad Pinder. Even pitcher Cole Irvin, who isn't even eligible for arbitration yet, he's been dealt. The Athletics have regularly changed their roster in the last three decades, but what they're doing is extreme by even their standards. The highest paid player on the team right now is Trevor May, who'll make $7 million this year, or about what Justin Verlander will make by the end of April. Newcomers. The A's traded for catcher Manny Pena and signed outfielder Ledmus Diaz, infielder Jace Peterson, and they signed Shintaro Fujinami, who has a nasty splitter. Fault lines. The Mets are baseball's biggest spenders, and the Athletics represent baseball's other extreme. According to Cots, Oakland's opening day payroll is projected to be $47 million, a figure so low that by season's end, Shohei Otani will likely have a higher salary the combined cost of the entire athletics roster. Breakout star. Shea Langoliers was the centerpiece of Oakland's trade of first baseman Matt Olson to the Braves last spring, and he made his debut in 2022, hitting 218 with a 691 OPS. Langoliers was regarded as a top 100 prospect going into 2022, and he'll likely get a lot of opportunity to advance this year. The X Factor. In previous seasons, the Athletics might have been doomed to face a brutal schedule in the American League West, which includes the defending champion Astros, the ascending Mariners, as well as the improved Angels and Rangers. But the new balance schedule might provide some relief for Oakland and rescue them from a 110-loss season. The Baseball Tonight Podcast win projection. Sarah Lang says 65, Hembo 60. Pagoda projects 64.6, which I just can't fathom in a tough division. I've got Oakland with 58. Alan Gonzalez covers baseball for ESPN. He's back home uh, in California after a time in Arizona. Alan, how you doing? I'm doing great, Buster. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Uh, I spent a lot of time yesterday uh, digging through the aftermath of the news about Gavin Lux, torn ACL, out for the year. And, and I wrote a piece that I think is going to run on ESPN.com later today uh, about the Dodgers' potential alternatives now at shortstop and a couple of observations. One, I really feel like that casual baseball fans don't understand what a big injury this is. And two, when you go through all the alternatives for the Dodgers, there are no great alternatives. There are, I mean, they are an organization, as it wrote in the piece, that have distinguished themselves by their depth. Uh, but in this case, this is as vulnerable as I've ever seen them since Andrew Friedman took over in a particular position in a particular moment. What do you think? Well, I would say that their upper level position player depth, particularly on the infield, is not great, at least not outside of the active roster. And I think you're absolutely right. You're not overstating the uh, impact of the Kevin Lux injury because, I mean, if you just sort of take a bird's eye look at the Dodgers, this whole season was all about 
taking a step back and letting their young players have a runway to play and to prove themselves because that's where they felt like they were at, they were at in their organizational trajectory. And nobody represented that better than Gavin Lux going into his age 25 season. The guy that I will remind you, they refused to trade in several other instances in the past to get ready to ready to go impact players for a pennant race because they felt like Gavin Lux was going to be a future star for them. And they felt that shortstop was his best position. Some of the Dodgers coaches that I spoke with in Arizona before this injury were really high on how Gavin Lux's arm would play at shortstop. They felt that he could be able to handle the position even without shifting. And needless to say, they love his bat. I mean, that's his calling card, right? They love his approach at the plate. They felt like eventually he could hit at the top of their lineup. With Gavin Lux down, I mean, look, the immediate thing you say is Miguel Rojas is going to be your everyday shortstop. He was not brought in to be the everyday shortstop. He was brought in to be a backup. Chris Taylor will see some time at shortstop. Um, they might even have Mookie Betts play some second base to give them a little bit more infield depth. But, look, I, I, I said this on Twitter yesterday. Eventually, they're going to need somebody. They can't replace Gavin Lux in the immediate. And their lineup is lacking. They let Trey Turner go. Justin Turner's not there anymore. Um, you know, it's basically Max Muncie and Chris Taylor are coming off some really down years. They needed the steadiness that Gavin Lux, when he's healthy and right, can provide, and now they're not going to have it. And I, you know, he's had three years of apprenticeships for the Dodgers, Gavin Lux, and just being around him last year, first off, he's a super talented, he's a confident player, but you could feel last year like that growing. And it felt like this year was the year potentially he was just going to be a monster presence in that lineup. Yeah, I mean, did you feel the same thing being around him last year? They, they feel like he's a leader. They feel like he's a leader. He's, yes. a, he's eventually going to be a leader in their clubhouse. They've always seen it that way. And, you know, I, I was listening to him talk. I wasn't in Arizona um, in the last couple of days when this injury happened, but I, was, I watched his interview and just sort of watching him break down and talking about how, like, what an honor it is to be the shortstop for the Los Angeles Dodgers. I think he really carried that. And, you know, he, you talk to the Dodgers coaches. He was in L.A. really early on working on shortstop because he wanted to get it right. Right, him and Miguel Vargas together in Los Angeles taking ground balls with Dodgers coaches in December when nobody was there because he wanted to be the shortstop. And just it's tough for the Dodgers. I honestly, I really feel for Gavin Lux because I he, this was his time, right? This was like his time in his career to take that step forward, the step that a lot of people in the Dodgers believed that he was capable of taking. And before he could even get started, it was just taken right out from under him. So I'm going to ask you in a moment about whether or not this injury, how it affects your view of the National League West, because, of course, we got the news yesterday, Joe Musgrove is going to be out for a long time. Maybe not a whole season, but he's going to be out for a significant period of time after suffering that broken toe. But first, just running through the Dodgers' options, you know, and talking with rival executives about what's out there in the shortstop market. Um, start with this. An internal potential solution is Chris Taylor, who told reporters yesterday, you know, he's altering his throwing program a little bit. He's getting ready to play shortstop. He was a shortstop in college. He was drafted as a shortstop. He's played almost 300 games at shortstop. But if you put him at shortstop, it takes him away from what his real value has been since he joined the Dodgers, a guy who could plug and fill a lot of different spots. So they may use Chris Taylor at shortstop, but that's not something they necessarily want to do. And you referenced last year, he had a terrible offensive year. Chris Taylor was really bad last year. And it's not just that. I think Chris Taylor defensively could handle shortstop. The problem is that they're also thin at other positions. So if you move Chris Taylor out to shortstop, now all of a sudden you got to backfill at other places. Right now, before Gavin Lux's injury, it looked like Chris Taylor was going to be basically your everyday center fielder with maybe Trace Thompson and David Peralta platooning and left. That's what it looked like because they don't really have much else in the outfield. They have to go out and sign uh, David Peralta late in free agency. Some people on the Dodgers are high on James Outman. Some people are uh, on Outman. Some people are not. Um, we'll see about that. There's just a lot of guys who are. And like I said, they were going to give guys an opportunity to prove themselves as young players. There's a lot of uncertainty there with their young position player talent. Gavin Lux was part of that, too. So was Miguel Vargas to an extent. But then once you get beyond that, there's some real uncertainty about who they have. That's why I think eventually, right, they're going to have to. They're going to have to go out and get a shortstop. The problem is, you know, Buster, at this time of year, spring training, this is not a time to get impact talent. Sometimes you got to wait until June, July. 
Miguel Vargas, you mentioned, uh, he they're excited about him, but they're excited about him as second base at third. Doesn't solve the shortstop. Mookie no. Betts, as you mentioned, talked about playing inside. That doesn't solve shortstop. No. Um, you know, Rojas, you know, people wonder, will they turn the position over to him? What I got back last night from other teams was, look, this guy was a salary dump by Miami. He's purely a utility guy in terms of what he brings offensively. And how he hits runs completely counter to what the Dodgers have looked for on base and power. Yeah, so, I, I mean, they they think, yeah, you can fill the spot with Rojas for some time, but you're going to be looking for somebody else if that actually is a solution they land on. And I will say, too, and you're right about that, that the upside with Miguel Rojas is defensively he would have been an upgrade. So, right. and, and especially in a year when you can't shift and the Dodgers can't make up for those deficiencies with how they game plan, that would have been valuable. But I, I thought it was interesting, too, that earlier in camp, Dave Roberts mentioned batting Mookie Betts a little bit lower in the lineup to be in a more of a rump production spot in the lineup. Wow. But that can only happen if you have somebody at the top. I thought maybe eventually Gavin Lux could graduate toward that because he does have that kind of approach. He's a patient hitter, puts the ball in play, can drive it the other way. Right now, if they don't have Gavin Lux, they don't really have that. So it, it's going to be really tough. There's a lot of speculation about Isaiah Kiner-Falefa of the Yankees. And I, you know, yeah. doing my reporting last night, they did talk to the Yankees during the wintertime. They had conversations about uh, IKF. But uh, IKF is really the same kind of player that Rojas is. The best part of what he does is defensively, but he's offensively challenged, doesn't hit for power, doesn't take walks. So you're kind of getting the same player. And on top of that, he's scheduled to make $6 million. And normally you'd say that's not a big deal for the Dodgers. It would be this year. Like you're not necessarily going to go out and jump and grab a $6 million player if you can elaborate on that. Yeah, no, and, and there's a thing. Here's the thing. Um, Players who can play a premium position, who have upside defensively and are and have a really good approach at the plate are really difficult to come by. Yep. It's why the Dodgers wanted to give Gavin Lux the position. And it's why they didn't feel like they needed to spend $300 million in free agency. And that's why you're not replacing him at all. They don't. And you're absolutely right what you said at the top. I don't think, I think lower in their farm system, they might have it, but in the immediate, they don't just don't have the organizational depth to do it. I know there were conversations with the Brewers about Willie Adamas earlier in the offseason. I wonder if those talks get revisited. That's just one name to keep in mind. I'm sure there will be others, but um, I think Dave Roberts touched on this yesterday when he met with the media. You're not really replacing that right now. You just got to make up for it in other areas. Yeah, you could. Uh, Iglesias is a free agent. Uh, you know, some people mentioned yesterday Andrelton Simmons, but there's a perception in the industry Aaron Andrelton Simmons' career, you know, he's not is over. Uh, I don't know if he's formally announced he's retiring, but that's the perception of some teams. Didi Gregorius had one homer and 242 plate appearances yeah. last year, and Powers supposedly what he does the best. So there's not a lot in free agency. The best guy, the feedback that I got was the best guy is Jorge Mateo of the, of the Orioles because they're loaded with middle infielders. You know, you have Gunnar Henderson, you've got uh, you know Jackson Holiday coming up through the minor leagues. But here's the thing. The Orioles are in a position, because he's making only $2 million, the price tag will be huge for a player still 35 bases last year. is excellent yep. defensively. And you know and I know Andrew Freeman never pays sticker price for anybody. And that's what people were telling me last night. Yeah, you can go get Mateo, but you better be willing to pay big for him. And, and maybe he's not that type of player that Andrew would do that for. And I could see this being a scenario where the Dodgers go into the year with this as a clear deficiency. And they just sort of taking a step back and assessing to see just how bad the need is. Because yep. if there's one thing that you that you hear a lot from the Dodgers and how they've gone about these last few years, which has been uncharacteristic to how they navigated it early when Andrew Friedman got there, was they feel like they've given up a lot of prospect capital. Now, they've done well in those trades, mind you, but they feel like they've given up a lot of prospect capital for immediate pieces. What, what you mentioned with Mateo would not be that because he's a younger player. But I think there's a hesitancy to part with prospects right now, given where they're at organizationally, that maybe they'd be hesitant to do that initially. Maybe they go into the year, see what they have in their young outfielders to see if maybe they could step up, have quasi-everyday roles so that Chris Taylor, maybe Mookie Betts, who loves playing second base, by the way, uh, can can help fill out their infield depth before they go out again. But you're right about Miguel Vargas. I, I should clarify that, too. Second and third base, second base primarily. He's not an option for them at shortstop. 
No. Uh, Paul DeYoung is another name that I heard last night, but he's owed $9 million for this year. And the Dodgers have to be absolutely convinced that he has progressed beyond the last two seasons in which both years he hit under 200. So I, I don't see that happening. All right. Uh, give me 60 seconds on whether or not this injury changed the way you look at the National League West. I think it does. I, I If you looked yep. at the Dodgers, I thought the only thing that I was that, that's hard to assess is that the Dodgers every year work their Dodger magic and get a lot out of guys that you didn't think that they would. They're just elite at just maximizing potential within their team. But um, I, I think I would have picked before the start of the year the Padres were going to win the division. I just think the momentum is on their side. The talent is on their side. And I think it's their time. And I think I, I really do think the Gavin Lux injury is big enough that that's enough for me to say. I mean, obviously they could suffer injuries too, but at this point, Padres National League West. Wow. And as you know, that would mean a switch of about 20 wins. I can't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, Dodgers won 107 games last year. Uh, before you go, tell me what you saw in Otani yesterday in his first appearance in, in an exhibition game and what's apparently going to turn out to be probably his only appearance pitching for the Angels in the spring. Yeah, he looked sharp. He looked like Shohei Otani. I think there was some concern about how deliberate he is to the plate and how the pitch clock might affect him, but it didn't seem like there were any issues there. Um, Shohei Otani is going to be very, Shohei Otani is always very motivated. Um, but this year, his free agent year, his agent basically came out and said in so many words that he's going to be a free agent, right? So this is, this has to be he a big year say for him. It. I keep on waiting for him. Just say he's going to be a free agent. There's nothing wrong with saying he's going to be a free agent, Alden. Just say he it. He came as close to the edge as possible, but he kind of said it. Um, he said, look, he's earned the right to become a free agency and test the market. That's as close as Nez is going to get to saying anything, especially about Shohei Otani. But, look, he's going to be motivated, and I can't wait to see what kind of year Shohei Otani is going to give us this year. All right, sir. Thanks, Alden. Great to talk with you. Thanks, Buster. Appreciate it. Dogs are an important part of our lives and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you gotta check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The man. Swing and a high fly ball out towards left field. The voice. That one well struck. The legend. On its way. Chiambi on baseball tonight. And this place is going bananas. Book Chiambi, play-by-play man on Chicago Cubs broadcast on ESPN Radio. You hear him do basketball all the time, and he also is the voice of the show. Boog, how you doing? I'm good, Buster. Good to see you. How are you, brother? I'm doing okay. Although, I, again, you know, you're the voice of the show, which means I got to hear you all the time. Oh my God. I got to hear from my son all the time. Uh, yeah, you know, tell Boog this, ask Boog that, you know, to, to get the, you know, tell me. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I thought of this question sort of in honor of him uh, in doing the narration for that and taping all that. Give me the most difficult name for you to pronounce. The Ooh. one that you skipped over and over. You're like, God, I can't get that right. I don't think that there was one. I think that if. I, I just think that what ends up happening that's hard and that people don't realize is I don't just 
So I don't just say Buster only. Then I record it as only so that that's available to say only swings and misses or only kicks and fires. But then I also have to do it conversationally. So I have to go only who's kind of a jerk. So I have to do it with that like rising intonation like that. So I have to, so I'll sit there and just be like, only Kirk Jim, pass him. Like I have to, you know what I'm saying? Like I have to just, I'll sit there for 20 minutes, just going down names, just doing them like that. And that's a, a special kind of torture. So how long are the sessions, the, the recording sessions? You have to block out like a week? So there are probably about two hours at a time. In the last about three years, we probably recorded about 260 hours. 260 hours? Yeah. You're kidding. Yeah. Like eight and a half days, you're saying. Yeah. Or eight. Uh, that, that, that is, dude, like, yes. you know, that's. Yes. Yes. Man. And That's so do you correct. do it in a studio? Do you have something at home where they give you an iPhone or? So I have a rig at home in Chicago and then they'll take uh Singy and I'll go out to San Diego as well to do it. So it's, it's some of both. I, I'm trying to think on a percentage basis. What's what I'm not sure. I, I we probably have done more remotely, but um, you know, it's with a standard broadcasters headset, like the Sennheiser. Um type headset that we would use in a booth so that that works quite well um so that's been the main thing have you had to do like mid-season uh changes you know if a let's say a player announces he wants to be called fred instead right. of joe you have to do yeah. something with that we try to and then you have guys who are called up i mean like one of the things that was cool was when brandon hughes was called up it coincided with a recording session and he got called up and then he stuck and so i got to like go up to him and tell him hey man the next you know downloadable update on mlb the show you're gonna be in the game and his eyes just got really wide he's like seriously i'm gonna be in that video game so that that was that was pretty cool. You know what I mean? To be able to tell a kid, you know, our reliever is just called up from the minor leagues. Hey, you're going to be in the video game. Um, you know, the official Major League Baseball video game. It's pretty, pretty neat. Have you gone up to a player specifically knowing that a session's coming up and just double checking his pronunciation of his name? Because I do that um, with broadcasts. I'll, if I, all even if I hear... Even if, let's say, I listen to every Cub game and you pronounce it one way, I will still go yeah. to the player and say, Absolutely. this is what I've heard about how your yeah. name is pronounced, yeah. but you tell me how you pronounce your name. No question. I mean, it's a it's a big one. I mean, look, in our world, and this is a totally different conversation, but it's like, you know, I hate the way, and it's gotten better, but the way we gringify a lot of the Latin names. Like, I think it's, it's really bad. And I think, you know... Look, ultimately, my name is S-D-I-A-M-B-I, right? And, like, you don't have the latitude to pronounce it Scramby. Like, I'll tell you how it's pronounced. If I want to tell you it's pronounced Steve, like, that's the way it should be pronounced. You know what I'm saying? So I'm totally with you going up to the player. That's the main thing. Okay, so tell me then, uh, as long as we're talking about pronunciations, how have you handled the name of the former catcher and his father, the name of the former general manager of the Detroit Tigers? How did you pronounce the names of those guys? So now here's that. It's a real, you know, this, are you aware? You know, this story? Oh, I, I've asked Alex. I've asked the son. So, okay. So here, so this is, so his dad, this is, this is the perfect example of it. His dad is Al Avila and Alex eventually it got basically bastardized into Avila. And the reason is, and I went to Alex and asked him about it. He basically just gave up. He gave yes. up telling people it's Avila, not Avila. And I would, and I went up to him before the 2013 ALCS, and I said, Alex, I'm going to pronounce your name Avila during this series. And he said, I'm good with that. That's how it's pronounced. And then I just, I had Tiger fans the entire time because. They're used to hearing the PA announcer say, now batting Alex Avila. Um, they're less used to the TV announcer saying, now batting Alex Avila. Um, but his name's Avila. And I went up to him and asked him. And 
I'd have people tweeting at me, you know, 10, 15 people a game saying you're pronouncing his name wrong. And it's just a good example of where it's weird. People think that they have ownership of how the guy's name should be pronounced and they don't. Yeah, I remember actually it was a little uh, parallel conversation when I started covering the Yankees. Um, You know, a number of his uh, of Jorge Posada's teammates would refer to him as George or Georgie. And that I remember asking Posada, like, how do you like your name pronounced? And he was so specific and you could hear that it was important to him. I like being called Jorge. And and he might as well have finished the sentence with, I don't like being called Georgie. Yeah. So, well, I I mean, when it Eduardo, like, go ahead and ask Patuka how she likes when we call him Eddie. Really? Not a fan. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, by like the way, I, I, I only, because I, I, I have Jorge Posada's answer in my ear, I've never for, referred to Eduardo as anything other than Eduardo. Yeah. In anything I've ever done because of that, it just stuck with right. me, even though, you know, you know how relaxed he is and, you know, you hear. The best. The best. Yeah. So anyway. It's a good topic, by the way. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Speaking of broadcasting, tell me how the new rules are impacting your job. So it's funny, but I, and, and it's just, a, you know, the random nature of the sport. But I've done three games so far, and they've all been slogs because the Cubs have walked the ballpark. So, like, I've had three three-hour games, basically, roughly speaking. So, like, it, I haven't noticed, like, I haven't had 206 or 225 yet, and I haven't noticed this, like, breathtaking pace yet. I've watched it. I've seen it. It, it's I'm very happy with what it is. And and there will be spots where you're going to really have to tighten up. Look, it's good for everybody. I'm a gas bag. I could always stand to use less words, period. So I asked Tim Kirkchin on the podcast on Tuesday uh, about the response he's hearing from players. And I mentioned to him that that the responses I've gotten remind me of the steroid, uh, the, the question around steroid testing in 2002, 2003, where you had the leadership at that time of the union saying, no testing, nobody wants it, privacy rights. And then you spoke with individual players and the majority of them, the vast majority I found actually were in favor of testing. In this case, the union you know, unanimously voted against any sort of uh, these rule changes, the pitch clock. And then I go at the grassroots level. I told Tim, I'm thinking 60, 65% of the players I've spoken with are okay with what we're doing. I'd put it higher. I'd put it higher than that. I don't I don't think that there's any issue here. Like I'd put it higher than that and I'd put it closer to 80%. And really? I would also say, yeah, and I would also say this, the part that, you know, the union, I get it. I you know, they're athletes, but the part about the union that they need to understand is your discomfort does not mean that the rule is not working. People are going to be uncomfortable in this spot and it'll still be fine. They're the best players in the world for a reason. They adjust to stuff. It'll be okay. But everything, resisting every single thing that makes them uncomfortable, it's just not going to work, man. And, and I understand they're routine. They like to be comfortable. Uh, but in this instance, yeah, some guys are going to be uncomfortable and it still is going to work out fine and everybody's going to play well. Most of you work during the summers on Cubs games. So I want to ask you about their strategy in the offseason, which I really liked. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs, but if you told me that the the Cubs had one of the greatest improvements in win total over 2022, I wouldn't be surprised because I've seen Cleveland, I've seen Tampa Bay do the pitching and defense strategy and have it really work out. What do you think? They're going to really catch the ball. I mean, I don't think there's any question that the anchor of the team will be run prevention. I'd like there to be some more swing and miss, but I would also say the wild card factor is I think Craig Breslow is established as the director of pitching for the Cubs that they have a pretty good infrastructure. Remember back with, you know, with Theo and Jed when it started, their basic philosophy was we are going to draft and develop hitters and we'll sign free agent pitchers. And they kind of punted on developing pitching in the last, you know, four years or so. They've really focused on the infrastructure with pitching. They've gotten some guys better. They developed develop some guys. They have some guys coming. Um, so I think you're going to see some guys get an uptick in swing and miss. I still think it'll probably be middle of the packish, so the ball's going to be in play. But they will really catch it. I think there's going to be times where they're going to struggle to score. I do think if if 
that scenario you talked about in terms of one of the leaders and improvements in win total, if that were to happen, I would think that say a Suzuki taking a next step would be a big part of it. Um, so that oblique strain is, is not a, a good direction for him or them. I understand we're seeing a different schedule, a balanced schedule this year, but I still feel like that part of the, the context for the Cubs improvement is going to be they're playing in the, one of the weaker divisions in baseball in the central. That seems yeah. to be fertile ground for improvement. Yeah. Agreed. No, there's no, I, I agree. I mean, that's the, the one part of it is, you know, it's, uh, I, I would tell you this though, like, I, I think, you know, the, look, no, none, none of those two teams, whether you're talking about the Cardinals or the Brewers are, you know, without flaws. Um, I still think though, on a bigger market team, my guess would be if the Cubs had, if the, if the Cubs had Burns, Woodruff and Peralta, I think they'd get hyped up probably a little more than the Brewers get hyped up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, along those lines, I'm going to throw just, uh, you talked about the Brewers. I'm going to throw a stat at you and see, uh, I, I give you a stat question. See if you know the answer. Remember last year we talked about the Brewers. Yelich struggled in their offense, et cetera, et cetera. Out of 30 teams in baseball, where did the Brewers finish the season in runs scored? I threw this at Sarah Langs last week as well. I will say 13. 10th. Okay. Yeah. I, I Sarah guessed about 20th. I would have guessed something in that range too. I, I, you know, assumed all year based on the struggles of Yelich that they, uh, they struggled, yeah. uh, or they, you know, that uh, they were a lot better than I thought they were clearly. I think Jesse Winker is going to have a good year for them this year. I well, think that's a good buy, good buy low. We'll see if he's healthy. What do you think the impact is, the injuries to Gavin Lux and Joe Musgrove? Ooh. You know, it's funny because I feel like the Dodgers kind of sat out free agency and, you know, it seemed like what their strategy was going to be in line is they're, you know, at the deadline, if they're up or they're in a spot, then they'll trade for like a big guy. I don't know what they'll do now. I mean, I still think, I mean, look, they have, Rojas and he can handle it and he's solid defensively so in the short term I don't know that there'll be an immediate you know look at a solution no they led the majors in in runs per game last year um you know they they were they were an elite offense again they don't chase they walk um I you know I I think I'm interested to see if JD Martinez has a bounce back because he worked with Robert Vance Goyak every day um so I, I think the Dodgers will be fine, but what, you know, do they think that Rojas is a real solution is a, a question to me. Well, they're obviously building some alternatives because Dave Roberts told reporters they're going to have Mookie Betts play more at second base than they, than they initially planned. And they're going to have Chris Taylor extending his, uh, his, his arm from shortstop more starting to do some throwing drills to work on the left side of the infield. So well, remember, they, that's where he was drafted. He was drafted out of UVA as a shortstop. So yep. he's, super, he's super athletic. Exactly. Uh, and last one, you texted me last week, I think it was, with an unusual question. Uh, but Mike Napoli got one Hall of Fame vote, and you wanted to find out who voted for Mike Napoli for the Hall of Fame. Yep. So tell me what uh, what your take on that was and what your conversation with him about that was. Well, I, the part, the other part that was a fun tie-in is I worked with one of the 42 guys in the history to get just one Hall of Fame vote in Jim Deshays. Now, when Jim did it, he sort of petitioned for it just kind of as a joke. But, um, you know, in terms, of, in terms of nap, I just thought, you know, he's like the ultimate winner guy. At his peak, he was, look, Whatever you want to say about that 2010-11 group, Mike Napoli is the best hitter on that team. Full stop. Best offensive player on that team. He was a monster, man, and ended up turning into a pretty good defensive first baseman. But all the cliches applied. Play the game the right way. He was just someone that guys gravitated towards. Um, they still do now as a coach. He just has that it. There's no way to you know put a value on it. And – Randy Galloway decided that he was a guy that was, you know, worthy of it. I'm cool with it. I like it. I think it's really, I think it's, I think it's neat because sometimes the whole thing gets a little carried away with itself. And I, I, I like, oh, really? That. I think that's oh, really? <laughs> 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 
Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that about Mike Napoli. I actually, this is a hundred percent true story. Had a five minute conversation yesterday with Tommy Edmond about Mike Napoli and how great a base runner he was. Because we were talking about base running efficiency in the Cardinals last year. And I brought up Napoli as an example of a guy who you look at and go, that guy can't run. And he was one of the best base runners of his time. It's funny that when you talk to to the group in 2013, like you don't think of him as as a speed guy, but like he was he was their best base runner, no doubt, 100%. All right, Boog. Good to talk with you. My son will love your answers. Uh, and I'm, unfortunately... You know, I got to listen to you all year. I miss you, buddy. It's good to see your face. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. Elizabeth Hart at eHart Tweets writes in, if a hitter strikes out as a result of a pitch clock violation, will that count as a strikeout for the pitcher? What if Clayton Kershaw's 3,000th career strikeout came as a result of a pitch clock violation without him even throwing a pitch? Yep, I double-checked on this. I had 99.9% sure uh, that this was the case, that what you laid out, it does count as a strikeout, and it confirmed with someone at Major League Baseball. So that scenario that you just laid out, that could happen. Don Irvine at Don Irvine writes, and will the pitch clock become a deciding factor in some games this year and become baseball's version of a buzzer beater? Yes, it will be a factor. And there, I think especially early in the year, there will be games decided on a pitch clock violation. But I think you're going to see much, much, much less of that by the time we get to August and September and October when the players get used to it. Jack Fulham at Fulham 33 Australian Major League Baseball fan here. In 2014, MLB brought an opening week series to Australia. Do you think there is any chance this could happen again? Would love to see it. Yeah, I'd love to see it too. I will tell you that a lot of players I spoke with who made that trip afterward complained about the jet lag and how it they felt like they needed two or three weeks to recover from that and to get back to normal with the sleep patterns. And the player association has to approve those things. So I, I'm curious to see if it could happen anytime in the near future. I think some perspectives would have to change. Teddy Wilson at report by Wilson writes in is baseball part of your family's lore or what are your earliest baseball memories? He writes, I was born in Houston during game one of the 1980 NLCS. My dad story is my dad and doctor ran back and forth between the delivery room and waiting room to watch the game. Yeah. So to be clear, there's no family lore with sports because all of my siblings, my parents don't like sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mentioned this before. I, one of my siblings has a television. Okay. Uh, None of them pay attention to it at all. The closest that I can come to family lore was the 78 playoff game between the Red Sox and Yankees game 163 in Fenway Park. My mom agreed that I could skip school that day. So I didn't miss the beginning of the game. Uh, And then in the second inning, my stepdad yelled in from outside that the cows had broken loose. And so I had to run and I was like weepy, you know, 14 years old and I'm crying angry at the world because my cows got out. Debbie, who was our primary fence breaker, uh, she got the cows out and into the Hungerford's pasture. And it took me about three innings to bring them back. The Red Sox still held a 2-0 lead at that time. That was probably the closest thing to what you're looking for. A vintage Buster-only story right there. <laughs> <laughs> Last one for today. Hillel Armbarn Kreef at Hillel New York Yankees writes, and especially as a data analyst, I cannot understand how analytically driven teams still have spring training position and roster battles because, one, the sample size is too small, and, two, most of their opponents aren't major league players. How can you explain this? Well, generally speaking, uh, as spring training begins, there's a belief that, yeah, um, you know what, the team is pretty much set because of what you're talking about. You know, the decisions are are based on what they saw in the larger sample the previous year, maybe the Arizona Fall League. Uh, but they also are smart enough to understand people change. Players change. You know, if a guy is projected to be on your roster and he shows up 30 pounds overweight, which has happened, that could change <laughs> some of the roster projections and maybe they take the small sample size uh, more seriously. And then I've heard situations, uh, heard of situations where players come in and they've developed a pitch, right? They just look different. There's a different feel to the player. Uh, You know, Clark Schmidt, uh, who pitches for the Yankees this year has come in with a cut fastball. He's a great early in camp. And I don't think the Yankees, 
you know, we're looking at him as, as necessarily being a guy at the front of anything that they're planning, but you can make an impression in spring training. You can change minds in spring training. Alrighty, that's it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. We will be back on Friday. That's it for today. My thanks to Alden, to Eduardo, to Boog, to Taylor, to Sarah. Sarah's going to be working on those Taylor Swift tickets for uh, for Rabbi and Eduardo and myself. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Uh, and remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.